The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Come on back if you would, and you can open in a Bible to Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book of the Bible. If you're newer to the Bible, last book of the Bible, chapter 2. There are Bibles in the back, or find Revelation chapter 2 in your Bible app. We are continuing in these seven letters to seven real churches, and through these letters, Jesus is addressing issues his people face and will face in all places, at all times, until he returns. Let's hear what God has to say to us today, but first let's ask for his help, and then Alan will read our passage. Holy Spirit, we pray for the gift of illumination, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to behold, know, to understand what you have for us in this, your living and active word. Would you help us most of all to see, revel in, and trust Jesus all the more today? We ask you for your help in his name. Amen. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that I may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Alan. I like surprise victories. Do you? Of course, we had one this week. In the March Madness, Aztec win, go Aztecs today. I was told to announce, to ask you, please don't, uh, if you check your phone, don't ruin the score for those who are recording the game later on. Another surprise victory happened in 1976 of a different sort. It was at a Paris wine tasting, a tasting of 20 wines. 10 white wines and 10 red wines. The French judges there in Paris at this wine tasting were some of the best-known people in the French food and wine industry. And these French judges, they knew that some of these wines were from California and some were from France, but they didn't know which was which. It was a blind wine tasting. But it really wasn't considered a fair fight. These French judges were all convinced. They knew that California wines were vastly inferior to French wines. Ah, back to France. One judge sighed as he actually tasted a California Chardonnay. Another, sniffing, sniffing, uh, sniffing rather, a French wine declared, this is definitely California. It has no nose. The French judges were sure 
They were positive that French wines were superior to California wines. But when the results were revealed, the victorious wines, both red and white, were both from Napa Valley. That victory for California wine has resounded for decades now. The California wine industry has never been the same. Another surprising victory has resounded, not for decades, but for millennia. A victory that makes our lives never the same. A victory that means to impact how you and I think today and tomorrow and every day of your life. Would you like to see that victory? Good. It's in verse 8. Thank you. Verse 8 reads, And to the angel or messenger of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Smyrna was a beautiful city in present-day Turkey, but that beautiful city had become a crucible of suffering for these early followers of Jesus. So Jesus takes a piece of the vision of himself in chapter 1 to tell these suffering Christians what they needed to know about him. That Jesus is the first and the last. That he knows the end from the beginning. That he is the eternal one who died. You should ask there, how does the eternal one die? Well, therein lies a surprise. For God the Son took on a human nature in addition to his divine nature, such that in his human nature he could die, die for our sins, and then he came to life. Then he rose from the grave and is alive right now. Friends, that's the victory here. Jesus is victorious over death. And that surprise victory means to change everything. Jesus' victory over death is what we need to see here. It changes, well, it changes some of the most difficult things we face. Suffering and death. For those areas, this victory says in this passage two things. Do not fear and be faithful. Two commands in light of that victory, do not fear and be faithful. Let's see both of those. First, do not fear inevitable suffering. Here's the first command in response to his victory over death. Do not fear inevitable suffering. This letter is one of only two of the seven that received no rebuke from Jesus. No correction. But that doesn't mean you'd want to receive this letter. Because verse 10 drops like a bomb. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear the inevitable suffering to come, Jesus says. Now, I have a slight problem with that command. 
because when it comes to inevitable suffering, I am often fearful. How about you? I don't know when it's coming, and I don't know how, but I know suffering will be knocking at my door. It's inevitable for you and for me. And so I play this mental game of what if? What if Sung or my kids are in a terrible car accident? What if Sung or my kids get badly injured? What if one of them is diagnosed with a serious, perhaps deadly disease? What if one of them dies before me? What if someone breaks into our house and does terrible things? What if we experience some financial catastrophe? And some of you have experienced some of those things, incredibly hard things, but I haven't yet. So my mind goes, what if, what if, what if, what if? And do you know what my what if scenarios produce? One thing, fear. Can you relate? So why not fear inevitable suffering? Well, in each of these letters, Jesus says, I know. In all seven. The risen Jesus walks among the lampstands, we saw. He's he's present, he's near to his people. So in verse 9, look back to verse 9, he says, I know, I know your tribulation and poverty. The persecution in their midst resulting in poverty. When people there came to Christ, they would stop sacrificing to the idols related to their work that ticked people off, and so they were getting thrown out of their jobs and resulting in real poverty, abject poverty. But Jesus says next, notice, you are rich. I know your poverty, but you are rich. You have the wealth of God's grace and all its benefits. I wanted to say, youth, kids, young people here, listen, true wealth is not buying whatever you want, whenever you want, or living wherever you want. True wealth ultimately is in knowing Christ. He knows their tribulation. He knows their poverty, though they are rich in him. And in verse 9, he says, and I know, I know the slander. You see that? I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. At this time, Jewish people were exempt from the requirement to worship the emperor as Lord and God. So where Christianity was considered a, a Jewish subset the Christians were safe. But it seems here, Jewish people were perhaps denouncing the Christians to the authorities. Hey, here's one of those people who won't burn incense to Caesar. They won't say Caesar is Lord, and they're not Jewish like us. So John says, and Jesus says, they're doing the devil's work. Now, it's important to remember, this is from the Jewish Messiah and a Jewish human author. So this is not an anti-Semitic statement. This is a theological statement. If you persecute Jesus's people, you make yourself an instrument of the devil's purposes. I mean, if you're getting the picture that becoming a Christian in Smyrna involved real sacrifice, you're right. 
But the risen Jesus knows all about their situation and yours. He's near to you. He's present. He knows. He knows what is hard in your life right now. He knows that. He knows what is disappointing for you right now. He knows the things that have not gone as you had hoped. He knows the sickness you're battling. He knows the financial trial you're experiencing. He knows the burdens you're carrying on your heart as you walked in today. He knows when people slander you, when people speak ill of you or mistreat you. What a comfort it is to know from verse 9 that he knows and is near. But if we're in Smyrna and we're reading this, wouldn't we think, great Jesus knows. That means he's going to intervene. That means he's going to change things. But Jesus says instead, no, things are going to get worse. Back to verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. We're already suffering. Yes. And do not fear how it's going to get worse. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Now, now prison here was not a place for corrective incarceration. Prison was where you awaited your sentence, banishment or death. You see, the, the devil, though, has destructive purposes here. And yet, did you notice that God has his own purpose? Did you see the purpose clause? That you may be tested. Did you notice that? That you may be tested. There's some purpose here being alluded to. That you may be tested. This is God's work as well. Tim Keller, in his outstanding book on suffering, which I would highly, highly recommend, he tells of Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychiatrist who survived three years in Nazi death camps. Frankel observed how some of his fellow prisoners were able to endure the horror of that because, Frankel said, they found meaning. They found meaning. I can't imagine that kind of suffering, but that's what Jesus is alluding to here. Meaning or, or purpose that you may be tested. But what is that test? Well, let's read on. We get a clue. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now, 10 is a symbolic number, a number for completion in Revelation. Jesus is, in effect, saying you're going to suffer for a definite, fixed period of time, which means he's ruling over their suffering. You're going to suffer for a definite, fixed period of time. But this 10 days of testing, it was supposed to ring a bell for them. It was supposed to help them think about Daniel chapter 1. When Daniel and his friends were shipped off to Babylon to work for their enemies, and they said, we don't want to defile ourselves with the food we have to eat here due to its associations with idolatry. So they asked for a test. A test. For 10 days, they said. 10 literal days. Just give us vegetables 
to eat and water to drink. Test us, it says. Test us for 10 days and see if we're just as healthy as the others. At the end of that test, they were just as healthy, even better. Now, John's point with this allusion to Daniel 1 is not for us to all go on the Daniel diet, as fine as that might be. John's point is that Daniel and friends were tested when it came to idolatry, but they did not compromise. And in that test, God met them and glorified himself. So Christians in Smyrna, in your test, follow their example. As you are persecuted for not indulging idolatry, don't compromise, don't give up, don't give in. God will meet you somehow, some way to glorify himself. And listen, the same is true for you in your own test. God will meet you. He has purposes. I don't know what all of those are for your life. I don't know. At a minimum, at a minimum, he will strengthen your heart and refine your faith to cause you to rely on him in ways you never have before to the glory of his name. So the victorious one who conquered death addresses our hearts and says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Let me ask you a question. How will you resist the fear of inevitable suffering? How will you do that? How will you resist the fear of inevitable suffering? How will you... How will you prepare yourself for suffering that you don't fear? For me, I need to replace my what-if scenarios with what-will-be-true-then scenarios. I need to replace the what-if there's a terrible car accident, what-if someone gets injured or the kids get injured or develop a disease, or what-if someone gets breaking in, breaks into our house, or what if there's a financial crisis? I need to replace the what ifs that produce fear in my heart with what will be true then. I'm not saying you ignore the future, but you realize that it will be true then that Christ is risen and victorious over death. And it'll be true then that the risen one will know my situation and will be near to us. And it'll be true then that the victorious one will be ruling over it all and he will be accomplish his purposes in and through that suffering. And that is or will be true for you, Christian. The risen one knows your suffering, rules over your suffering, and works through it to accomplish his purposes. Jesus' victory over death calls us first to not fear. Do not fear. But then he gives a separate related command. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. That's straight out of the second part of verse 10. Look at verse 10 again, please. It reads, be faithful, be faithful unto death. 
Be faithful always is the implication. Be faithful up to and including death. Now, we don't experience persecution that includes the possibility of death here. Many Christians do around the world, so we pray regularly for the persecuted church. Yet, we do suffer on the pathway of discipleship following Jesus, and we do face inevitable death, all of us. So the call here stands for us, too, to be faithful up to and including death. Notice why. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This pictures the wreath of victory that victorious athletes would wear in this day. And Smyrna was famous for his games. They knew all about the wreath of victory. But Jesus says, I have a far better victor's wreath for you, life eternal. When you are defeated by death, it would seem you are victorious in life forever. So be faithful up to and including death. Smyrna also had a a hill with great buildings on it, and it was nicknamed the crown, the crown of Smyrna in this city. So Jesus is saying, in effect, I have a far better crown for you. Life forever with me. So be faithful up to and including death, and I will give you that crown. He goes on then, relatedly in verse 11. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches, plural. Let us pay attention, he's saying. The one who conquers, who, who overcomes, who, who is victorious is the idea. The one who is victorious, you will not be hurt by the second death. Now, what is that? Revelation chapter 20 unpacks that for us. The second death as envisioned a, an eternal lake of fire. It's everlasting punishment and eternal hell. Now, this would have encouraged these suffering Christians, I do believe, to the injustice of losing your job and the injustice of becoming then impoverished because you won't engage in idolatry and to the injustice of being slandered and the injustice of loved ones being taken away and killed. Just because they won't say Caesar is Lord, to those injustices, Christ is saying justice will be done fully and finally forever. That would have been a comfort but it's a terrifying reality if you do not know Christ. Because in our heart of hearts, we all know we're guilty. So though we say we want justice in the world, and we should, we don't want it for ourselves. Because justice for the guilty means judgment. Justice for rebellion against infinite holiness and infinite righteousness means eternal judgment. 
wrath. But one has died to satisfy that judgment. And he came alive. See, all of us have two unbreakable appointments, death and judgment. But God's holy justice can be turned away because God in his great love sent his son. God the son took on a human nature to die for our sins, to endure the just judgment of God. So if you surrender to Christ, if you hope only in his life, death, and resurrection, he will reconcile you to this holy God of love. For Jesus died and came to life. And if you are a Christian, of course, justice has been satisfied against you. Death will mean life forever. So be faithful up to and including death. But what does that mean? What does this faithfulness look like or entail? Well, Smyrna was also known as a a faithful ally to Rome, the emperor. In Smyrna, their, their loyalty to Rome was proverbial. So Jesus is saying, in effect, as your city is so loyal to Rome, so you be loyal to me. When you lose your job and become impoverished to no fault of your own, stay loyal to me. When a loved one is taken away or you are taken away to prison and death, stay loyal to me. Why? Because he gives the crown of life. That means he is worth living for and dying for. That's how we stay faithful, isn't it? Up to and including death, knowing, believing, being convinced that the victorious one, he's worth dying for. He'll give the victor's wreath the crown of life, and that means he's also worth living for. Let me ask you, friends, where where do you need to hear this call to faithfulness today? Where, Where is loyalty to Christ hard right now for you? Wavering, possibly, for you? I mean, suffering... Suffering can understandably cause us to struggle in that sense of loyalty. We ask, Lord, if you loved me, why is this happening? And that's an understandable question. But we all have, we all have an idea of what life should look like what we would prefer life to be like. And when that doesn't happen, it's very hard. It's very challenging. We may want to give up or give in to some escape, escape through a substance or maybe to a secret sin of some kind, or we get disillusioned or become cynical. Jamie Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, He writes of a polar expedition in the 19th century 
of the USS Jeanette, a polar expedition that failed because of a mistaken map. Their map showed that there was a gateway through the polar ice up in the North Pole area, an opening to a vast, wide-open polar sea on top of the world. So they staked the entire expedition on that map, heading to some wide-open polar sea. As Smith puts it, they were heading to a world that didn't exist. And then Smith says, many of us are doing the same. We're living for a world that doesn't exist. We're living for a world where there is no suffering in this life. We're living for the good life, maybe as our culture would define it. For me, I want a suffering-free life now. We try to head to a world here that doesn't exist. But the victorious one is saying, you know what? Ultimately, Christian, you are heading to a world that does exist. You are heading to a world that exists. For you. He gives the crown of life. He will bestow on you the crown of life. You're heading to a world that does exist. So Christ is worth dying for and living for today. There was a disciple of the Apostle John, our human author, named Polycarp. Polycarp became bishop of this very city, Smyrna. So Polycarp may have been in this church when this letter arrived. Well, about 50 years after this letter arrived, persecution broke out again against the Christians in Smyrna. And Polycarp, now an 86-year-old elderly bishop, was targeted. He was taken to the stadium in Smyrna. The Roman official said to Polycarp, Deny Christ and I will let you go. Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The official said, I have wild beasts to devour you. Polycarp said, call them. The official said, I will have you destroyed by fire. The elderly bishop of Smyrna famously replied, the fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about, the fire of judgment to come and of eternal punishment. Why do you hesitate? Do what you will. And they burned him at the stake. That, friends, is living for a future that does exist. He gives the crown of life. That's being faithful up to and including death, because you know that Christ is worth dying for and worth living for. So, so let us live for him. Let us live for him. Let us, in the words of this passage, conquer. That means endure. That means keep going. That's how you obtain the victor's wreath. You keep going, you endure, you persevere. When you feel like giving up, which happens sometimes to all of us, or you feel like giving in to some particular escape, 
the substance, some secret sin pattern perhaps. But when you're in that place of cynicism or maybe despair, you, you bring others in. You talk to people right here who love you, maybe even today. You get prayer and you get help. You know, we're in this together. That's the beauty of the local church. We're in this together. You say to those around you a couple things. You say, help me bring God's word to bear for what is true about my situation that I would not fear. That Jesus knows. That Jesus reigns that Jesus has purpose right now in this time of testing. Help me bring God's word to bear that I would not fear or at least push the fear back and help me also be faithful to the one who loves me, who died for me, and who came alive because he's worth dying for and living for. You see, friends, a surprising victory has resounded in our lives. A victory that changes everything, including the hardest things. Jesus is victorious over death. So do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Be faithful unto him. Let's pray. I don't know where you can identify with my fears, but I encourage you right now to bring the what ifs, which are sometimes very real, very terrifying. Bring them to the Lord. He knows, He cares, He died. He came to life. He's reigning. I don't know where the call to faithfulness lands for you. He's eager to help you and meet you. That you might glorify him. Bring it to him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grant any who would not yet know you genuinely to be aware of your mercy and grace and love in Jesus Christ. Grant us all help to prepare for suffering. For those who are in suffering, would you meet them particularly this morning? For those who fear it like I do, help us to trust you this morning. 
and help us to remain faithful or loyal, knowing that you will meet us and bring us home. We thank you for your eagerness to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.